0: Welcome to Offshoot, the Fight in Capital podcast with host Kevin Choquette. Offshoot is a curiosity-driven conversation that features a wide range of real estate and business professionals. In each episode, we unpack the knowledge, vantage point, and domain expertise of our guests. Then we move beyond the facts and figures and dive into the personal habits and mindset which allow them to be high performers in their respective field. This podcast's objective is simple, supporting entrepreneurs, fostering relationships, and uncovering meaningful conversations that positively impact business.
1: Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me on episode eight of Offshoot. This episode brings forward one of the young guns in Max Sharkansky, the founding partner of Tryon Properties. Tryon's a value-add investor that's done a gangbusters job of growing since around 2006. They own 2,500 units. They've done $700 million of business. They have 600 investors in their stable and are well on track to pick up a total of 10,000 units. They've also just expanded from the West Coast into the Southeast. And uh, Max is really impressive individual when it comes to what he's done coming out of commercial brokerage and then becoming a principal on a value-add investment platform. In the conversation, I think you'll hear some really nice nuggets from him. Uh, some of them come across as simple because we've heard them so much, but if you really listen, you'll get the, the wisdom in it. One being own real estate for the long term, period. I mean, he kind of says this in passing, but it, it probably can't be overstated. Uh, two, you make money on the buy. We all know that, but uh, it's the truth. Uh, another one he kind of brings through is thinking long-term on decisions and making sure you're fair uh, to the long-term, even though the short-term expense might be a little asymmetrical or, or unfair, you know, kind of keep the big picture in, in mind. Anyway, Max and I have a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening into my conversation with Max Sharkansky, the co-founder of Tryon Properties. Max is a longtime acquaintance of mine who I met over a dozen years ago through one of his legal advisors, yeah. Tim Alt. Since that time, he and his partner, Mitch Pascover, have simply crushed it. Max oversees all aspects of the business, from acquisition to disposition and property management, to capital raises from lender and equity partners, as well as the creation of their own discretionary funds. Since founding Tryon in 2006, as a principal, Max has been involved in over $700,000 of $700 million dollars, excuse me, of multifamily business and captured average IRR, IRR returns in excess of 30%. Tryon is a value add investor that works on to find mismanaged or even distressed properties in the market that have favorable long-term growth trends. Their historic focus has been on the West Coast, though that's recently changed to include the Southeast as Max has moved his wife and two boys from Los Angeles to Miami to capture that space. And as if that wasn't enough, Max is also a partner of Continental Partners, one of the leading mortgage banking platforms in the country, which perhaps not surprisingly has a particular strength in multifamily finance, though they also operate in industrial office, retail, and hospitality. So not only is Max an operator, but he's someone who knows the brokerage ecosystem and how to navigate it, which I suspect has a material impact on Tryon's success. Prior to co-founding Tryon Properties, and from 2002 to 2006, Max was a top-ranking commercial real estate broker at Marcus and Millichap in Los Angeles. He also graduated from Loyola Marymount University in 2001, where he earned a bachelor's in uh, business administration with a focus in finance. To me, Max is one of those guys that can get people asking things like, man, what am I doing wrong with my life? This guy's killing it. So Max, uh, while I'd also like to know some of what I might be doing wrong with my life, let me start with hello and welcome to the show.
0: Hi Kevin, Uh, thank you for having me on. It's great to be here.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, To get us started, could you just tell me and the audience a bit about yourself and Tryon Properties?
0: Sure, Uh, my name is Max Sharkansky. I'm a managing partner and co-founder of Tryon Properties. Uh, Born and raised in LA, Uh, as Kevin mentioned earlier, I just moved to Miami to launch and build an office here to cover the Southeast, uh, similar to the way that LA covers the Western states. We're in Colorado and California and Oregon and have looked at some other states, uh, Denver West. Uh, Here we'll be looking at, we'll be covering Florida, Georgia, and the Carolinas. Uh, We were just awarded our first deal and are in contract on our first deal. And it is in North Carolina. We're very excited about that. And uh, we will be growing our portfolio out here as well. So it's an exciting opportunity. Um, we have been in business since 05, 06. Prior to that, I was a broker. I was at Marcus and Millichap. Uh, went there straight out of college when I was 22 years old. Brokered for around five years. And my partner and I decided that we wanted to be on the principal side of the business. He was in services as well. He was on the debt side of the business at HFF. And, you know, we were talking, and just said, Hey, our clients are the ones making all the money. You know, we're doing great and this is super fun and we're successful and, you know, we're making a couple of bucks, probably way more than we thought we would be making in our mid 20s. And nonetheless, our clients were making significantly more than we were. So we said, Hey, you know, that seems to be where all the money's made in real estate is owning the real estate. Uh, didn't, you know, wasn't exactly super outside the box thinking. So, we were young and didn't have much going on uh, in terms of obligations personally, you no know, mortgages or, or spouses and children, families that we had to worry about. So we decided to make the jump and go into the principal side of the business. We bought our first multifamily property in the San Fernando Valley, for our first few multifamily properties in the San Fernando Valley. Uh, I was brokering in the valley, so. That's where I had access to off-market deals. I had access to market knowledge. So that's where we started transacting and acquiring. And it snowballed from there. We bought our first couple properties at the end of 05. We continued buying into 06. And then we left at the end of 06 and opened up our own shop. Uh, We aggregated a small portfolio in the last cycle. And then as things started to change nationally in the economy, We did see the writing on the wall and we decided to sell. Uh, So we sold everything. Uh, We sold almost everything in 2008 prior to the crash. Uh, And, you know, it's not like we we had a crystal ball, but things started to change. Uh, The subprime lenders started to go under. uh, Rents in our portfolio started to to dip after, you know, seven, eight, nine years of growth. uh, Things started to. Go the other way uh, with rent and with vacancy and just the economy in general. So we, if you're underwriting correctly and you're underwriting honestly, where you're underwriting negative growth for the next few years and the market still hasn't changed, then you can't make value add work anymore. So we sold everything and we started calling banks to try to buy non-performing notes as we were selling. Uh, it took us a while for our first closing. We didn't buy our first few notes until 2009 because asset managers during that time who had been originators who originated a lot of these loans, they weren't really willing to sell, uh, much of a discount. Uh, we were calling on construction loans, which is where you saw the first default in 2008. And they said, Oh, you know, we're not going to sell you that for 65 cents on the dollar. That's insulting. We'll sell it to you for 97 cents on the dollar and our position was you're crazy you guys aren't seeing what's happening yet uh, so the bid ask spread was just massive you could drive a truck through it and you couldn't make anything work you couldn't transact but in 2009 once everything had really collapsed is when banks lenders, servicers started to come to the table and we were able to uh, consummate some deals and we bought our first few notes in 2009 and again from there it snowballed and in 2009 10 11 12 during that entire period we did not buy a single deal from a human being or a private organization everything was just banks servicers uh you know auction the auction.com types even though we didn't buy anything from auction.com we did buy everything during that period in that capacity buying it from a lender uh, and then coming out of the downturn in late 2012, or early 2013, we went back to the, the value add business, all the distress cleared the market and there was nothing left to buy. So from there we built our portfolio and now we've got, uh, gosh, a little over half a billion in portfolio, I know I'd say yeah, like 600 something million dollars in portfolio, uh, and we're continuing to grow. So here we are.
1: That's great. Thank you. And, and the assets that you guys bought, uh, through the note, you know, acquisitions are those assets that you still hold today or, or were they all liquidated as you kind of got them, uh, righted and and stabilized?
0: No, unfortunately we don't own any of those today. Otherwise we would have done very, very well on those, but that's okay because we liquidated those and we recycled the capital. Uh, we built up our investor base and um we really don't own much from that period even you know the 13 14 period we own a couple properties from back then and everything else we own even legacy is more from like 15 16 17 we really don't own much from that period at all
1: and going back to your first comment on on 2008 when you guys saw the handwriting and and kudos to you for getting out because i don't know that a lot of, obviously, a bunch of people didn't because of what had happened. But uh, if you look back and see that decision, was it a good decision from 2021 or, or do you wish you would have had uh, capacity to maybe hold on and, and see what those asset values are today?
0: That's a good question. Look, I think in a perfect utopian world, if we could hop in the DeLorean and go right. back in time... Yes, sure. You just keep everything you can, right? Because real estate over the long haul goes in one direction, but where we were in our careers, we were still in our early thirties and we were a fairly young company with young principals, and we didn't have much of an infrastructure and much of a capital base. So we had to sell a lot of those deals to recycle capital. So it really was almost unrealistic for us to keep any of that stuff because we had to recycle it to continue to buy more deals where we stand today. You know, we've got 600 plus investors where back then we probably had 10 to 20 investors, so we couldn't do that. We just, you know, we had to recycle and keep going. So if that happened right now and we were coming out of a downturn with our current access to capital, yeah, we'd probably keep a lot more deals because we didn't have to, we don't have to sell right now we don't have to repatriate that same amount of capital we can just refi or maybe recap and uh, stay in and continue to buy more deals and continue to raise new capital for it
1: in that 2009 to 2011 period you mentioned that all of your acquisitions were um, you know not principal to principal you were dealing with some sort of financial institution as COVID got started, and I should mention, we're kind of mid July, 2021. I think there was a lot of us who were prepared to do battle with the the last battle, which was, you know, the great recession, Lehman brothers, and kind of the freezing of the capital markets. And and, and exp- I personally expected things to look somewhat familiar and, and similar to that. it's proven to be the case that they didn't surprise, surprise, uh, but I wonder Have you guys seen? Do you think you will see any distressed debt opportunities as a result of COVID?
0: No, not in our space, not in multifamily, seemingly not in very many other asset classes as well. I mean, you know, with retail, retail's had some issues prior to COVID uh, with e commerce and everything, but I don't think there will be many COVID related defaults. The government did a nice job, however you want to look at it, especially from the beginning, you know, CARES Act, I don't think there's anybody, no matter what your political stripes or your political views are, that can argue with those initial couple stimulus bills. Uh, you know, whatever happened this year, you know, that's up for debate, but the government did do a really good job. I think that there's, there's no arguing that and was able to provide enough stimulus to where there wasn't massive distress in the market. So we got through that stuff reopened and rents, you know, I could say in our portfolio, rents are pretty close to where they were in 2019 pre COVID uh, on a lot of of our portfolio. And, you know, I'd say in our Oregon portfolio, they're beyond where they were same with Colorado, California, still recovering. So no, you're not going to see, you're definitely not going to see any, any, Distress in multifamily, and I doubt you'll see it in many other asset classes either. You you need something like the GFC to see prolonged distress.
1: Yeah, agreed. Uh, and you know, I I personally invested in a distressed hospitality fund, which is just another way of saying what you said. My capital has been committed for over a year, and there's been no capital calls. So even in hospitality, where you've seen you know just catastrophic fall off and occupancy and rev par you're still finding the banks kind of playing along to get along if you will and and i haven't personally heard of any real distressed trades i mean i know there's some that have sold 90 something cents on the dollar but i haven't seen anything clear i don't know have you have you guys seen anything in on the hospitality side that's really been a remarkable trade
0: um we don't really track that market to be honest you know we're just whatever I've read in the wall street journal. And if you look at where some of the publicly traded hospitality REITs are trading, they're trading seemingly at a very large discount to nav. So there's probably a buying opportunity there. Yeah. Um, and whatever has traded privately. Yeah. It seems like it has been traded at a discount, but it hasn't been a lender for closing and then reselling it. You haven't seen a whole lot of that. It's just more, more private ownership, selling it at a discount for whatever reason they had to sell it for. We did do some of that on the, on, on the multifamily side, uh, not distressed, but last year there was a window there of about three four months where COVID hit in March, and I would say through about June July there were buying opportunities, very strong buying opportunities, where we could get a discount of you know seven to ten percent, and seven to ten percent that's about a thirty year equity, and we bought of about five deals during that period. I mean, we had a very strong COVID because everybody went pencils down and everything that came to us off market and stuff that we had been working on in February, we were able to buy a very favorable basis. So everything that we bought in 2020, we bought about $150 million worth of real estate in 2020. We're going to just, those are all going to be grand slam deals because we bought them at a very low basis. And in 2021, the market has just skyrocketed. So what, what allowed you
1: guys to do that? Like, uh, I would say that I could understand the pencils down sentiment, right? And I think it was pretty, pretty widely held. Everybody's like, Hey, let's just pump the brakes and see where this thing's going. What allowed you guys to have the confidence to push forward and and secure those uh, discounts? I mean, in retrospect, it looks easy in the moment. Maybe it looks different.
0: Well, like you said, everybody went pencils down and we took a contrarian viewpoint and said, there are going to be some opportunities here. There's nobody in the market. Everyone's pencils down or close to everyone. Uh, We sent out an email to all of our investors. Would you be interested in continuing to buy? If we could find some Grand Slam opportunities, what we feel could be Grand Slam opportunities over the long haul. And we got a lot of responses saying, yes, we'll buy. We sent out like a survey monkey poll to all of our investors. And I think 80, 85% said they would continue to invest. And we took advantage of that. And, you know, we just underwrote some opportunities very conservatively, assuming huge bad debt, declining rents, expanded cap rates, and we were still able to make it work. So we, we ran some sensitivity analyses, assuming all those things and the deal still worked uh so we can we stayed in we said look this is this is a pandemic this isn't a financial crisis this isn't a house of cards like the gfc this in theory should be temporary like how long can this really last so seemingly we were correct and we bought some deals from some people that really got you know they were concerned and they want to free up their own liquidity so we were on the receiving end of those transactions and they'll do fantastic. Uh, and that's, you know, that's how we rationalized it, that it's temporary. It's not long term, It's not going to be three, four years. It's going to be a year or two tops and we'll be out of this and it'll be back to normal. So here we are and
1: and underwriting to the downside and still feeling like it's an acceptable outcome is, is a pretty, pretty rational response, right? Hey, stress, this stress, this stress, this, do we still get there? Yeah. Okay. Let's buy it. That's great. Congrats.
0: Yeah. Hey, kudos to RLPs from $50,000 check writers to $8 million check writers who said, yeah, you know, you guys are onto something here. So let's keep buying. Yeah. And they're going to do very, very well. I don't think anything we bought last year will be lower than a 20 IRR possibly not lower than, than a 30 because we bought them so well.
1: Yeah. That's great. So what's happening in your business now? What do you guys see? And where, where are you seeing challenge?
0: Oh, there's so much liquidity in the marketplace. Um, It's so competitive. We're right now trying to expand in the Southeast where everybody wants to expand in the Southeast, right? So it's extremely competitive. You still get a little bit more yield than you do in the Western States, which is nice, but it's very, very competitive. Um, I think you're seeing a lot of institutional capital flow out of office and retail into multifamily. I mean, I think if you look at Blackstone, Blackstone back in their, you know, 01 to 08 heyday, they bought, I shouldn't call them their heyday. That's always kind of their heyday, but back in those days, they were like 30 to 50% allocated to office and now they're sub 10%. So I think you're seeing that across the board with a lot of institutions and that's creating a lot of competition, uh, even down where we're buying, you know, the 30 to 20 to $50 million range we're competing against a lot of those institutions that are buying that. People just don't want to be buying office and retail as much as they were before, even your classic office retail operators. And I know a lot of those names, I'm not going to mention them, but they're now investing in multifamily and that's making it very competitive. So it's a very competitive landscape. The good news is there's a lot of opportunity in in multifamily. America is still very underhoused, and the supply demand imbalance is creating a lot of rent growth. So, Uh, I guess we'll see what happens over the next five years. You know, you have a lot of cap rate compression from all of that liquidity in the marketplace, yet you have a lot of rent growth. So let's see how that shakes out in terms of returns over the next five years.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I would normally save this for, for later on, but it's just a perfect segue. So I'm going to jump on it. Uh, yeah. You know, on my LinkedIn, the other so first I'll back up and and credit Willie Walker with his Wednesday uh, in his sort of webinars he had uh, Peter Linneman on. I think it was just last Wednesday, and I I really like listening to Peter. They went through some of their assessments, macroeconomic assessments, and it had me go on to the Fed. uh, I think it's just Fred, right, Fred.gov, but the Federal Reserve Data Center and pulled up, Uh, M1, the money supply, and I ended up throwing it on my LinkedIn. But if you look at kind of a 60-year chart of monetary, uh, well, I should just say M1, which is a specific measure of the most liquid kind of capital in the marketplace, uh, it has a nice, call it 12% uh, slope from left to right from, say, 1960 to the beginning of 2020 and then it literally is your classic hockey stick and it just goes almost like 80 degrees up. Uh, And we've now got just way, 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 way more capital in the marketplace than we have ever had. So while I get, you know, a lot of people are moving from asset class X and Y into industrial multifamily. um, And I think that is its own phenomena how do you, you know, you're sort of saying like, look, the, the rents are going up, we're still underhoused. We like the bet. We're going to go long. Where do you overlay? Oh my God, there's, you know, I think I heard 25% of the capital in circulation was printed in the last 12 months. So where do you guys zoom out and start thinking about, okay, there's literally a wall of capital out there. How's that going to impact your business?
0: We think it's, you know, it that goes back into what we were talking about earlier, where that capital definitely is going to flow its way up into fund managers hands. And of course, it's going to make multifamily that much more competitive. At the same time, you're going to see a tremendous amount of rent growth because of all that additional money supply in the system. Um, that's at least, you know, that's our thesis. So we're continuing to buy for that reason. It's just, you know, we're, we're underwriting more aggressive rent growth also than we usually do, uh, because a, because of COVID recovery and B because there's so much money supply in the system. Um, so we do think that's going to translate into rent growth, you know, how that affects middle and working class families. We'll see because will there, you know, the question is, will their wage growth keep up with housing costs and food costs and gas costs? and everything else that uh, people have to spend money on, I don't know.
1: Right. You think Uh, we're inflationary period here? Or is this as everyone's sort of, you know, I guess the big debate is inflationary, deflationary, transitory inflation, What's I mean, and I know this is, you know, fairly esoteric, but uh, it seems to overlay well into kind of trying to figure out the big picture that supports your investment thesis.
0: Yes, we think it's inflationary. Um, we think yeah, it's ridiculous when you hear some of these talking heads on cable news say, oh, you know, there's no inflation except for these five categories. Well, those five categories make up 90% of personal consumption. So right. it's crazy to say there's no inflation. So, as far as we're concerned, being in the housing business, the, the rental housing business, which is a very large part of the way people live in America, uh, I think it's 40% right now. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's going to be very inflationary over the next three to five years.
1: Yeah. I think it's funny. You th- you zoom out and you listen to that, uh, well, you know, inflation excluding the highly volatile food and energy sectors. So let's see, the first thing you do is eat. The next thing you do is either heat your house or drive to work. So why the hell do we exclude that as like a measure of inflation? But anyway, that's... And how
0: about paying your rent?
1: Right, right. So, so unless you're a
0: homeowner with with a fixed rate mortgage, then yeah, that doesn't come into play, of course. Uh, you know, the old the old joke is the best form of rent control is a mortgage, a fixed rate mortgage. Right. And in that case, yeah, sure. You don't have to worry about your housing costs if you're just staying put. Uh, you do have to worry about it, of course, if you're moving, because there's a lot of upward pressure on uh, single family housing costs. Uh, but, you know, with rents, rents are going to go up. So we'll see how that translates into economic growth or not.
1: Yeah. So on the day to day, what what is your uh, I mean, I gave the little intro on the 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 front end, but I, I pretty much pulled that out of LinkedIn and I don't really know what you're tasked with, but what, what is your day-to-day right now?
0: Well, it's interesting right now. It's unlike it's ever been because I'm really dealing with two coasts and I'm on the East coast right now. Um, I'll be here for a while. Uh, so it's a lot of East coast business in the morning and quiet time in the morning. And then the West coast starts to go crazy. And I get a lot of emails and calls between 1230 PM and 7 PM here, uh, that are, West coast related. So it's a lot of, of course, acquisitions, asset management, uh, general organizational growth, um, and doing that on two coasts. So very, very busy.
1: Yeah. It sounds like you're wearing all the hats though.
0: Yeah. Wearing a lot, yeah. Well, you know, we've, we've got phenomenal acquisitions teams and operations teams and project management style construction accounting. Uh, so, you know, I'm dealing with those teams. Um, but, yes, I'm, I'm talking to all those folks, uh, on both sides of the country. So a lot of the times, you know, go home, have dinner with the wife and kids, spend some time with them. And then at nine, 10 PM here, it's still six, 7 PM there. I'm able to do some work before I go to sleep. So yeah, it's, it's a lot.
1: Yeah. I can relate. Um, you, you hinted at it a bit, but I'd like to drill down on your, your current investment targets. I I know geographically, we just, touched that you guys are moving into uh florida uh, georgia and the carolinas and i know you've been largely denver west prior to that but what about unit unit counts um you know class a class b class c um duration of investment like what what's the sweet spot i'm sure there's a, a reasonably wide strike zone but what's it look like for you guys today
0: So with everything we have in contract right now, we're at about 2,500 units. It's about 2,200 with a few hundred in contract. Um, we've bought a few thousand more than that. Uh, we are looking to scale, you know, to 10,000 plus, uh, we are, as I touched on geographically, we are in California, NorCal, SoCal, we just build really in SoCal NorCal, we're primarily in the East Bay in Sacramento doing value add, we're in Portland, Oregon. Um also doing value out in Colorado here in the Southeast. We're in Florida, we're, we're going to be in Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina buying our first deal in North Carolina. Um, in terms of profile, traditionally, historically, we have bought C's in high growth B to B plus locations uh, in first ring suburbs and some secondary markets and we'll take a c and turn it to a b what we really try to do is have the best class b b B plus asset in the marketplace um or or competitive with it uh if we don't if the asset doesn't actually have the bones for it then you know we'll try to get as close as we can and that's what we're doing here too here you know we'll probably be buying some stuff that's a little bit newer because that's just the nature of the beast here they did a really good job here in the southeast constructing new multifamily properties uh post-95, which you don't see as much in the West Coast. Uh, so, you know, like right now, what we're buying in North Carolina was built 02 to 06, which here would be considered class B, which will value add to like a class B plus A minus. or uh, I, th- I would say class A here is probably five years or younger.
1: Okay, got it. And how do you guys typically finance your deals from sort of acquisition and then on the downstream? Are you just doing bank debt? Or are you doing debt fund bridge debt? Or are you doing the agencies and then pulling supplementals later? What's that side of the business look for you?
0: The answer is yes. Yes. Whichever all, makes sense. All, all of the above, all yeah. of the above. We are, as so, just as a few examples on this deal that we're in contract on, it's an assumption. You're seeing a lot of assumptions out there. There are a lot of people who last year took advantage of the markets and put a lot of very cheap fixed rate debt on stuff but now uh that the market has really taken off they're selling and you've got a lot of properties floating around out there with nine to ten month old debt not nine to twelve month old debt and they want to sell so we're putting preferred equity subordinate to that um and that'll get us it's low leverage preferred equity it's still to about 70 percent of the total stack Uh, You know, we don't like to over lever our properties because that's one of the ways, probably the sole way to get in trouble. Uh, So we don't over lever, you know, we like to keep stuff financed at around 70% of the stack. Um, Sometimes we'll go a little higher. Sometimes, oftentimes we'll go a little bit lower, but uh, that's, you know, we want to be in that that general zip code. Um, Other stuff that we've bought this, you know, over the last year, we did a lot of agency debt on acquisitions we think the window on that may have closed because now cap rates are so low where it's difficult to finance with agencies so we're looking if you know if a property is free and clear of debt we're looking at a lot of debt funds uh, a lot of bank non-recourse bridge debt so that's probably where we're going to be in the next year and then we'll use agencies for the takeout Um, definitely not supplementals you know even if we do finance with agency on the acquisition we usually use floating rate debt we don't finance with fixed rate debt, unless it's a very special circumstance, which we did one last year. We got amazing 2.7% debt fixed for seven years, uh, uh, opens up to yield maintenance after year five.
1: And why do you guys typically go float just for the open prepay?
0: Flexibility, correct.
1: Yeah. Have you guys ever used HUD or considered HUD?
0: We have not. We've considered it. We've got a quote on one property and we wound up not using it we just we're not long-term fixed rate guys it, it rarely makes sense for us we are doing a recap right now on 12 properties in our portfolio we've got that out to market so we may look at some fixed rate debt there but we'll see
1: so let's let's zoom out to the one of the sound bits i threw out at the beginning uh your average ir to investors over 700 million million of acquisitions is above a 30%. I mean, a 30 IRR is an opportunistic return. So I think if we were to say, you guys are among the best, it it would be an understatement. Certainly, you know, when you think like institutional investment, people are always like, well, what quartile are you performing? It's almost certain that you guys are top quartile, if not top decile. So, um, you know, what in your view does it, does it take to, to do that. I mean, it really is. I don't, I don't know that there's a lot of groups that are able to say that in value, add multifamily investment.
0: Yeah. So thank you. I'm flattered. Um, we, you know, our investor level returns historically Maybe the art 30, I think that right now they're probably more 20 plus than 30 plus project level are definitely 30 plus, but, you know, either which way, yes, you're probably right. It's top quartile, uh, and if not top decile, and especially for our asset class, I think number one, you know, the old saying goes, you make the money on the buy. So we're very careful about not overpaying. So we, we like to get it at a favorable basis. Um, a lot of the times, you know, we're out there bidding, doing call for offers, best and final, and a lot of the times we don't win. But then. Oftentimes a deal will break down and you have a broken sales process. It will fall back to us, uh, or the brokers then see how we underwrite. They see how we write, they see how we look at the world. And you know, we, we have a reputation and our marketplace where we transact that we're very easy to deal with. And, you know, like you started the call off with where we know how to navigate the brokerage marketplace, because I used to be a broker. So we know you want to make their lives as easy as possible and sellers lives as easy as possible because people talk and people, you know, they want easy transactions. So we'll go through transactions very quickly, due diligence very quickly. We'll make everyone's life very easy and we close a clean, quick deal. So I think that keeps off market deals coming in. And we always have a very strong pipeline of off market deals. Um, we, also manage in-house. So, you know, in terms of acquisitions, that's it. So we we buy favorably. We don't overpay. Number two, in terms of operations, a lot of our competitors outsource everything. Uh, They're, you know, they have that private equity model where they just buy stuff and then they hire property management firms and they outsource everything. And you just, in my opinion, that's not those, you're not going to optimize your NOI if you're outsourcing everything and you're not going to optimize your construction and you're just not optimizing. So we're vertical, we're in house. We have property management in house, project management in house and the West coast, we have an in-house crew. Uh, we're looking out, we're looking right now at building out a lot of that on the Southeast I'm interviewing director of operations candidates to start building that out now. And that's how you optimize NOI and you drive the value of the real estate. So you Know between all those things, you are able to get a fantastic return.
1: Yeah, I think it's great. In fact, you literally just hit on like five or six things that I was planning to ask you. So, uh, let's talk about renovation costs. I mean, you say you have in house management, sounds like you have in house renovation. Some of the guys I know in the value add multifamily space. Uh, get pretty creative about controlling costs. So it could be containers of cabinets and countertops coming from China, or it could even go as far as um, starting a wholesale uh, slash distribution company that's picking up those SKUs at an ultra low cost and then passing them on to other companies like Tryon, right? Like, hey, if we're going to buy 250 toilets, why don't we buy 800 and we'll sell them to you know, our competitors in the marketplace and and undercut the other, uh, sort of retail channels for renovation product, right. As opposed to home Depot and the like. So in that slice of your business, how do you guys control renovation costs?
0: Um, great relationships with vendors. Uh, we are able to get a lot of materials. I think we've had a huge value add to our investors over the last year, because we have, you know, with the supply chain effectively breaking down over the last year we have still been able to source supplies and people have sold to us and they know they're going to get paid quickly and we're, we're a great buyer of materials and you know we have one property where we bought a new market so we outsource the management and we're using a firm that's one of the biggest in the nation that has some of the strongest relationships in the nation and we were still able to procure much better than they were. Uh, because you know we're so hands-on and we're, we're so scrappy with that, so uh, we have a lot of materials. Like you said, yeah, we we do exactly what you said. We buy a lot of materials up front. We buy at scale. We get discounts. Uh, we get phone calls when stuff is being marked down, and we'll buy at scale. And doing all these things translates to higher returns to our investors.
1: And then, what about on the asset management side? And and I will a hundred percent back you on your statement that uh, a lot of the quote unquote institutional investors will um, look. It's I'm going to oversimplify it, but at some level, that business is really akin to buying and selling stocks and bonds, and so the property level execution. Isn't given as great an, uh, an eye of detail in terms of, you know, how much staffing goes there. What's the right cost per unit per year, uh, excluding property tax and insurance, and how much staff should we put on there? Is it a is it a one person operation? Is it a five person operation? I see the small property managers who are, you know, really servicing the middle market guys pointing out that Graystar and their competitors are going to put five bodies on a job and just overstaff it so that the management company doesn't have to do much and pass all that staffing through to the owners where the small companies are like look we're not putting anybody on there full time we're just going to manage it from the central office we'll keep your costs down anyway my point is there's a lot of slippage between gross revenue and noi in the area of operating expenses now they're Obviously, a huge portion of those are uncontrollables. Um, But what's your guys' view in terms of, you know, why you brought it in-house, how you control costs, you know, that whole channel?
0: It's just that. I mean, it just, the whole, when we bought our first property, we used third-party management. It was not good. We had a horrible experience. They don't, you know, it's just stuff you hear where, you know, like, yeah, you're just not getting that first-class treatment. Uh, you'd probably do a better job managing yourself. and I, I don't want to dog the industry. There are some fantastic fee managers out there. Uh, like I mentioned earlier on the call, we've outsourced a little bit in Colorado and we we have one management company that is just spectacular. Uh, I would act as, as a reference for them. They're amazing. They've got true institutional experience. and by that I mean REIT experience where they actually operated the real estate and they just do an amazing, amazing job. Um, and some of them and others don't. so, we had that experience where we had a bad experience, and we said, "Hey, let's just do this ourselves." And it also kind of seemed like a head scratcher to us, where our industry, unlike most other industries in America, why are people outsourcing operations? It really, you know, it just seemed logical that you would do it better if you do it in house. So that was our thesis from the beginning, and I think that thesis that thesis proved correct. Uh, so yeah, here we are. You know, we have a fantastic operation, a fantastic infrastructure. Uh, we've got great people and we uh, do a great job for our investors with those properties.
1: Uh, I'm going to go a little bit deep here because I think the audience here can can bear it. And I, I'm certain that you've got the uh, sort of technical aptitude. Other income, right? So when we're underwriting deals, uh, there's always a question of like what ratio of EGI or gross rents uh, is an appropriate ratio to be capturing in other income. And whether we're talking about rubs or pet rent, application fees, admin fees, month-to-month fees, late fees, bounce checks, so there's, a, there's a long menu of ways you can kind of uh, monetize in excess of the monthly rent. Um, I guess, one, are you guys active in that part of monetizing an asset? Um, and then two, what do you think is a, a reasonable underwrite, um, in terms of a percentage?
0: It's all over the board, man. I wish I could give you an answer, but especially now where you've had a lot of states that have had moratoriums on late fees, uh, Colorado, I think just changed their whole law on late fees. They made it permanent where you can't charge a late fee before a certain day of the month. Uh, Rubs again. That's you know. Every state has their own regs on rubs. In North Carolina, it's illegal. You have to submeter uh, on water, but you're allowed to bill back certain other utilities. Um, late fees. We'll see what happens over the next few months with that. In several different states, um, I think for anybody buying right now, uh, whether you're buying a 10-unit building or a 500-unit property a good practice is to look at 2019 financials because 2020 is going to have very oddball, or as t 12, right? Right now, if you're looking at T 12 financials, it's going to be odd because of COVID. So most of the stuff we're looking at has very low other income. We looked at one property, not too long ago, that had very high other income because there were a lot of lease break fees because people were leaving the property and paying lease break fees. So other income was higher than historical. So we asked the seller and the broker to send us 2019 and 2018 financials. And it turned out that we were correct that they were higher than they should have been, uh, because people were just leaving that market. So you really got to look at it on a market level. Um, I would say for the most part, kind of portfolio wide, we're probably 60 bucks, other income, 60 bucks a unit per month, not including rubs.
1: Okay. Yeah, and look, the reason I ask, like you said, uh, going back to some of the 2020 acquisitions, you might have saved seven or ten percent on the on the asset price, which is significant, right? But going mm-hmm. into an underperforming or or more probably appropriately mismanaged asset, you might find other income is effectively zero, and you know there's an opportunity to go in there and just bring a different ethos and operating standard to the relationship between the landlord and the tenant um and if you have six or eight percent more revenue you can put in a pro forma it's a big deal right because that's yeah, it's all going to drop to the bottom line so you know it's just in our business underwriting deals going to the capital markets presenting a a defensible, stabilized yield on cost that's persuasive enough to get LP equity or PREF equity, like you just mentioned, to move. All of these little marginal changes, and right now we're just talking other income, they have a huge impact.
0: They do, they do. And let's not forget that when you drop that other income straight into the bottom line, it gets capitalized, right? And in our world and multifamily, you're talking about four to five caps, right? Which is 20 to... 25, 25 times.
1: times. That's right.
0: And that's why real estate is a game of pennies because that income, every, every dollar of income has 20 bucks of value.
1: That's right. Yeah. Um, and then how about OPEX? And I'll, I'll get away from this super minutiae stuff here in a minute, but here, here's the rule of thumb that we like, if I, if somebody said, Hey, give me a good number, I would tell you, and this is California based, um, plus or minus $4,500 per unit per year in OPEX, plus, and this would be for newer projects, right? I realized an older asset would have a higher number, um, plus property tax, plus insurance, right? And that's a whole other science here, right? When you're coming into a new asset, you kind of got to go, okay, what's what's my normalized OPEX if I'm a best-in-class operator? I, I, I'm gathering based on what you just said about sort of being vertically integrated and not trusting operations to say gray star or, or even some mom and pop operation that you guys are pretty dialed in there. How do you guys think about underwriting OPEX?
0: Um, you know, kind of going back to what you said earlier, I think we do, I, I know we do underwrite it leaner than the management companies. Mm-hmm. Um, we, but, you know, again, with, with the really good management companies, it's a conversation and, you know, they'll agree with you or not agree with you and, you know, they'll ex- experiment with you. Uh, but we tend to, I think we we definitely tend to run it leaner for, well, I shouldn't even say as management companies do, but let's just say market. So, and a, l- a lot of people, you know, they just kind of use industry standards for everything and they don't really give it much thought outside that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So we're able to do things let's see you know with payroll we might use we might hire one less person than our competitors would but what we try to do is we try to hire the the best people out there so we're spending more money on quality like we might spend a little bit more on our onsite manager and our head leasing person for a particular property and then we won't need as many other people because the property is just performing very well and those particular people in those roles are doing a fantastic job. Um, so I think, you know, that's a good way of looking at it is, you know, let's say you've got a 300 unit property and you're normally doing three and three out, maybe we'll do, you know, two in, three out and we'll spend more money on very, very talented, really, really good people. And you're ultimately s- saving on personnel and renewals and leasing. So the property's performing much better.
1: And when you're saying three and three out, you're saying three.
0: Oh, on I'm from- sorry. Yes, I meant three in the leasing office. Yep. Three out in maintenance. Yep. The the shorthand slang vernacular for that is three and three out.
1: Yep. Got it. Um, a little offshoot of this, but uh, I suspect you guys have been exposed to it and maybe doing it. Um, there are solar companies that are coming in and saying, "Hey, we can put a basically an, an energy plant on your roof." And you can get in between your tenants payment of a utility bill and the the utility and, and make a nice rip by selling them green energy at a price that's lower than your cost of production and lower than what their utility bill would normally be. And then a similar model we're seeing come forward is guys are bringing a uh, secure corner to corner Wi-Fi. Like, kind of, VPN super secure hardened wireless to tenants and saying, Hey, you don't need cable anymore. We'll sell you, you know, gigabit Wi Fi's for 60 bucks a month. Have you guys entered into any of those spaces where the relationship between the tenant and the landlord can expand beyond just providing shelter and charging rent?
0: No, we have not. Well, not in that specific case. Uh, we've done some like package agreements with utility companies and, you know, try to, you know, which that winds up being a win-win, um, our residents oftentimes can get Wi-Fi and utilities for less money. And, uh, we get a door fee and some other ancillary income along the way.
1: Yep. Yep. Very familiar with that. All yep. right. Uh, changing topics, capital formation, like you, you clearly have, more or less done at all. I mean, you've bought or raised however you want to think of it, uh, capital from all the corners of the market, from bridge to perm debt, to pref equity. I don't know if you've done proper mezz, but I suspect so. And I know you've done JV equity. You've also started to raise your own discretionary funds. You can give us a bit on, on fund three. Cause I believe that's where you're active right now, but what has moved you guys in the direction of, you know, putting your own funds together.
0: Good question the word you used earlier discretionary it just it gives us much more ease of execution so when we have that discretionary capital we know we have it it allows us to put up significant hard money day one it allows us to confidently know that we can execute on an acquisition Um, and it also allows us to have an easier execution for all of our investors you know you hear all the time the sponsors get oversubscribed. This is a great way for sponsor for our investors not to miss out on deals. So we tell all of our high net worth investors, or I'm say accredited investors, that they should invest in our fund. And that way they get to participate in every deal. A lot of people don't like doing it for whatever reason, you know, they, they like to have their own little version of investment committee. So they like to cherry pick deals, which is fine, whatever. Uh, but when you invest in our fund, you get preferred economics versus going direct, you get automatic diversification. Uh, it's just, it's such a fantastic way for investors to invest. Uh, I'm a big fan of the fund model for investors for those reasons.
1: And are you guys raising from institutions or individuals?
0: Individuals. It's a, it's a retail fund, high net worth investors, some family offices, some, some platforms for some, some like crowdfunding type platforms. But, yes, it's it's all human beings in our fund. It's not institutions.
1: Yeah, You guys have had some success there, obviously. I mean, you're saying you've got 2,500 units under control now. And I think I've got that right. Uh, yep. and, and targeting for 10,000. Um, how have you been successful? Because aggregating capital, especially if you will, I'll say onesie twosie, right? But just getting out, starting with three investors to 30 to a hundred. Now you're saying, I think you mentioned 600. How have you guys managed that?
0: Well, part of it is very organic, right? So we started out back in 05, 06, friends and family, just like everybody else, past the hat syndication, right? I was at Marcus, Mitch was at HFF. You ask all your colleagues, you ask all your friends, you ask family, you literally call every single person in your iPhone phone book uh, and try to get to and try to cobble together some equity. Then you bring a couple deals full cycle. Uh, when you make people money or lose people money, word travels very fast. Uh, you start to get a lot of referrals. And then you bring a, four, a few more deals full cycle. And then the friends of friends tell their friends right and then in 2011 i think it was the jobs act passed and that was fantastic for our business crowdfunding became an industry uh in terms of private equity crowdfunding not like um gofundme but in terms of equity crowdfunding real estate i believe has been the most successful and we were able to get a ton of investors online and that really helped us to get from 50 to 60 to several hundred investors. And uh, we have grown and compounded on that. We still raise money online. We work with the platforms, we work directly. We do a lot of direct marketing um, with Google, Facebook and the such, and uh, we continue to grow. So on the investor side of our business, which we haven't really talked about much, but we do have a very robust investor relations and marketing platform. We continue to grow that out. Uh, And our goal is to be into the thousands of investors by the end of next
1: year. Yeah, and look, I don't know if you are aware, but I had um, Ian Formigli from CrowdStreet on, I think, episode four or something like that. I know you guys have a relationship with CrowdStreet. You just touched on Jobs Act and, and sort of crowdfunding, I believe, in one of our previous conversations. One of the attributes that you most enjoyed about those platforms was that you were putting up assets to raise capital, but you were gaining a relationship directly with that investor, and it wasn't something that was sanitized or an- anonymized, if that's a word, sure. uh, by CrowdStreet. So, um, I guess one is that correct, and then two, what, what's your view of crowdfunding in general from here?
0: Well, That's evolved, right? I think you know there were some, there are some platforms like CrowdStreet that originally just. Uh, had a platform for, uh, like dating almost for sponsors to meet investors, but then things changed, and it became more of, uh, you know, these are our investors and you know, you can't just have our investors, which makes sense from them, right? Because for the fee that a sponsor would pay to a crowdfunding platform to just take their investors, I don't know that it was reasonable, uh, at that time. And now it makes a little bit more sense. Uh, so, you know, there, there's, there's a tail on the investor. So, you know, whatever, whatever deal a sponsor works out with a crowdfunding platform usually has a tail of some sort. Uh, does that answer your question?
1: Yeah, it does on that. I didn't know that had changed. Uh, that's, yeah, it, it's, it has it's changed. smart. Right. It makes sense that they would have caught on to like, well, maybe we shouldn't just give all our investors still these great operators for free. Um,
0: or, or, or for a one-time fee, right? There should right. At least that's be- the right way to say it yeah exactly exactly like we were paying them once and then we would get the investors and it worked fantastic for us uh but it probably wasn't the best business model for them for them yeah agreed. Yeah, so.
1: but then so my question on crowdfunding going forward i'll i'll hold back my opinions but you know it's 2021 crowdfunding has clearly um grown up yep. i'm just curious what you think as we go forward the vibrancy of the space um you know, just your opinions on it as a whole.
0: I think it's going to continue to grow. I think the cream has clearly risen to the top. There are only a few left, right? I don't, I mean, are there more than a handful that we know names of off the top of our head? I doubt it.
1: No, definitely uh, not.
0: Yeah, so the cream has risen to the top. Um, and I think it's only going to continue to grow. Uh, there are probably, there's probably room for a few other new ones, you know, in some, Ways that a lot of people haven't thought about, like, you know, some groups that are very large in other parts of the investment world that are now entering crowdfunding that I've heard of that are very interesting and probably have a very strong angle into the business. Um, and again, yeah, it's only going to continue to grow as more accredited investors hear about it, they will participate in it because they'd be crazy not to, uh, over all those years, you know, from, effectively 1930, 1940 to 2010, they didn't have access to investing in private real estate with great sponsors, unless you knew someone. That's why for all those years, it was always called country club equity because you literally had to be a member of a country club or know somebody who was to get access to these deals. And it was just such an opaque antiquated way of doing business, uh, separate from the rest of the world that didn't have these crazy depression era regulations. So, you're going to continue to see growth, which you didn't see before. And where a lot of these groups, I, I could tell you firsthand, I mean, we, we talk to these guys all the time. Uh, and used to be they had a bandwidth to raise one or $2 million, and now they're raising 10 million or more. And that's going to grow. Uh, and that's really exciting for groups like us and young sponsors too. I think a lot of young sponsors that want to emerge, this will be a great way for them to emerge. They'd be crazy not to take advantage of it the way that we do.
1: Yeah. Look, I, I was uh, involved in one of these ones recently. Um, Crowd Street brought out a hotel conversion in Florida, actually, hotel multifamily conversion. <clears throat> mm-hmm. They were looking for 9 million of LP. And I'll also mention that I think the controls that the LP is granted in the overall operating agreement are they're not egregious relative to the LP, but if your LP was institutional, the latitude and and sort of uh, forgiveness, or I'll just say latitude that the GP is given in those documents is significantly more than if you were partnering with say Goldman Sachs, but they're raising uh. $9 million. And in 24 hours, they had a $23 million commitment. So to, to your thing of the space in you know, a sort of, maturing and and it kind of catching on i mean it's remarkable to me to be honest because those guys have deal after deal after deal that they're putting up and i don't know that all of them are having that kind of success i do think there's a bit of a gap in you know how well that sort of consumer lp the high net understands the business plan if it's if it's right down the middle of the fairway you'll get a lot of interest if it's a little bit esoteric i think it's still a more difficult um investment opportunity for them to sell on those platforms. But I definitely agree with you. It's it's here to stay and it's going to change things not only for the operators, but for the retail investors. And it, that was the promise of it. I know you and I talked of it years ago when it first came out, we knew th- we knew the promise of it. It's really cool to see, you know, seven, eight years later, some of these platforms have really figured out the formula and they're doing it.
0: Yep, absolutely. I think, that first deal that you and I ever discussed that we actually still own. We crowdfunded a very small part of that equity and we still own that deal to this date. I I think that was 2013. That was probably one of the first real estate deals ever crowdfunded. It's a deal we own in West LA and Culver city. We've refinanced it probably four times. Uh, We've everybody's gotten their capital back out and we're into the promote on cash flow, so we'll probably never sell it. That's great. Yeah.
1: Well look, that, we've been
0: you know, that's when we were getting like six, seven hundred grand from websites, and now it's up, you know, like you said, you know, they're hitting twenty million bucks.
1: Yeah. I, I mean CrowdStreet in particular, I think they're their goal and I think they're gonna well hit it, uh, is to put out a billion dollars this year, which is I mean, it's just amazing. Uh, amazing. Yeah. So look, we've been doing a lot of you know facts and figures and and talking about the business, um, you know the hard business. I, I'd love to just transition over to talking about you, your experience, your beliefs, your habits, your rituals. Um, you know, as I as I said, alluded to a couple of times before. I think um, the performance of Tryon is exceptional. You know, you have clearly made some decisions, have some vantage points and worldviews that. Or putting you in a class uh, without a lot of peers, I'll just say that. So, um, if we can transition over there, maybe we just start with with mentors. I've had a couple of great mentors in my life. How about you know, for you? Have you had any mentors? Anybody that stands out that kind of helped you get into this space and and uh, you know thrive the way that you have? Yeah,
0: I think. First of all, any young people out there listening to this podcast definitely find a strong mentor. Uh, there's a lot of data out there. You know, if you just want to look at the data on people who have had mentors versus not, you just your career will do so much better. It'll be so much smoother. You have more of a path. Uh, it's just so much more focused, and it's much more pleasurable. Also, to go to day to day. You know, when you have that guidance early in your career. Um, and yeah, I've had mentors. I had mentors when I was super young in the brokerage business. That's that's M- Marcus's model, actually. You know, they, they hire very young people and they give them strong mentors internally and mentor them along the way. And um, I had fantastic mentors there. And then coming out of that, getting into the principal side of the business, you just, yeah, you know, you, you kind of do it breakfast, lunch, and dinner, almost, you know, as you're talking to investors, you're doing it with mentors too, like other sponsors who have been doing it for many, many years and decades. And, you know, they tell you what's been behind their success and their failures and mistakes and things they wish they would have done differently and things that they did very, very well. And, uh, it's something that you've got to be constantly doing breakfast, lunch, and dinner.
1: Yeah. Agreed. Um, you have a team, uh, and I'm, you know, apologies if these feel like they're bouncing around a bit, but you guys have built a good sized team. I, I should ask, how big is the team, you know, sort of out in the field managing the assets versus in office and, and sort of investor relations, asset management, pro- project management? What's that all look like now?
0: Um, the operations team is both, right? It's, it's corporate level and boots on the ground so corporate level in la we have a handful of people we're hiring one here now in miami um we'll see who that person will be but we've got some fantastic candidates and may i add they're not just from the southeast people do really want to come here from all over the country uh and we yeah, there are some really really strong people uh that we're looking at then we've got a construction crew that's been with us forever uh, in on the west coast that's probably that fluctuates kind of like 10 you know 10 to 18 people and then of course on-site managers uh community directors maintenance people probably about another 40 to 60 people there
1: okay so so a good size group. team yeah. yeah and good size and, team People who have listened to this uh, podcast a bit are going to recognize this question. But I was at an MIT educational thing, and one of the founders of Fitbit was there. Uh, and somebody asked him, like, well, you know, aren't you concerned about competing technologies? And his answer was, I'm not, con- I'm not concerned about any technology. What keeps me up at night is competing teams, um, meaning it's it's not the widget. It's the people behind it. And, mm-hmm. and you got you guys have gone and, and built a team of, call it plus or minus fifty people. So, your view of teams you've alluded to some of it already. And paying up, getting exceptional talent. But outside of that, what how do you how do you uh, see the team impacting your success, on success?
0: You said it. You got to pay up. You got to get great talent. Uh, I once heard the expression: "If you pay peanuts, you get monkeys." So. <laughs>
1: If, I haven't heard that.
0: <laughs> if you want to, you know, there's a range out there no matter what position you're hiring for, there's a range out there. If you want to be at the bottom end of that range or below that range, you're going to get bottom of the barrel t- talent. And if you're at the upper end of that range or outside of the upper end of that range, you're going to get top level talent, and it's that simple. Uh as you're talking to headhunters, we do, we do use headhunters. We do some hiring directly, we do some hiring through headhunters. It really depends on the position. But just look at the talent, look look at the feedback, look at the talent when you say, you know, for example, if a position is 100 to 125 and you're paying 125 to 130, look at the talent and it's going to be a big disparity. And I would highly recommend paying a little more because it's going to have an exponential result on your business, whether you're Fitbit or you're just operating apartment buildings, uh, you're going to see a huge result
1: acquaintance of mine uh mark moses was a a orange county residential mortgage uh operator a big platform one of the ones that i'm pretty sure imploded when all the others did in the great recession his one mantra over and over and over hire the smartest people in the world hire the smartest people in the world so
0: uh, yeah we've look we've we've you know as any business you improve on your processes right we've improved on our acquisition processes and operational processes. We've also improved our HR and hiring processes. And we use cognitive assessments and personality assessments. And we do a lot more research and a lot more digging on every individual than we did before versus, you know, you interview somebody, it's all, you just interview somebody, it's almost a personality test. And in terms of meaning, meaning how you like their personality in an interview. So there's, you're just heavily biased on how outgoing someone is and that you're hiring based on that. But now we do a lot more data. We do testing, on excel testing an accounting for hiring an accountant excel if it's an analyst cognitive assessments and i'm happy to share a lot of that with you offline or online but you want to hire the best people otherwise you're screwed
1: uh i'm blanking right now on the the no ray dalio uh principles his book right and he goes into uh into great detail on how much battery, the the battery of tests that they'll put into their potential employees to figure out who they are and what they are and how they communicate and how that is going to interface with the rest of the team. And it, it, it's almost to the point where if you're not using those tools, you're really just kind of gambling because you can pull so much risk out. I agree with you. In an in interview, no matter how skilled you are at it, personally, it feels like 50-50. You'll get it right half the time. And when you get it right, it's a huge win. Everybody knows it immediately. When you get it wrong, you're just spending time trying to write the issue, and, and eventually ends up and you know hopefully helping that person into a, a role where they'll they'll thrive. Um, I don't know. What do you feel any different in terms of your hit ratio?
0: It's gotten better. I mean, yeah, it's exactly like you said. You know, you're 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 closer to a coin toss when it's just an interview. I mean, of course, you hone in on those skills as well, and you know, you have a little more of an instinct professionally on who might be good versus not. And that does improve. But once you get into testing and it's just a whole other level, you, you know, more of what you're hiring and look, those tests have flaws too. Of course you can't rely solely sure. on those tests, but when you look at the whole picture, like you're just, you're going to get a much better team when you drill down more on every single part of that process.
1: Yep. Uh, So, look, as far as your personal growth, I mean, just in the years I've known you, it's very clear you've traveled a a good distance. What kind of avenues do you have to continue growing or or sharpening the saw, as Covey would say? Coaches, therapists, coursework, reading, conference attendance, like where do you go to level up your skills and and whether that's a hard skill or self-awareness and – uh, sort of personal improvement.
0: That's a great question. Um, I've never done executive coaching, like proper paid for executive coaching. It's more of what we discussed earlier with mentorship, you know, going out with people that just are further ahead of us, career-wise or ahead of me, career-wise. Um, I guess that's something maybe long-term I would look at, you know, I, ha- I have explored it to be honest, but haven't actually clicked by now. Um, i do a lot of reading you know you mentioned ray dalio i've read some books on you know hr like what we've discussed i think a great book there's a lot of great books out there on hiring and teams uh read a great one earlier this year by stanley McChrystal, general stanley McChrystal, uh team of teams team of teams yeah teams that was recommended to me by a friend of mine that has a huge global organization with thousands of employees and Obviously he's operating at a whole other level. And I thought that was a fantastic book and you know, super insightful. So I think you can do things as simple as reading a book to as high level as getting an executive coach. Uh, I think physically you have to be watching everything or doing everything you can to maximize your performance. Just like an athlete, you know, watch what you eat, watch your weight. Work out in the morning. I you know I wake up super early. I wake up in the fives. So I hit the gym. Uh, so you know I try to stay in good shape. I'm, I'm at the same weight I was five, six, seven, eight years ago. Uh, and I think you know that that's a part of it. So your health, uh, your mental health, education, and doing all those things to grow uh, personally and professionally.
1: Yeah, that's great. It's funny. Um, I think more than a couple of us are, have the affliction that when those who are close to us, give us a bit of advice, it may fall a bit on deaf ears. And I'm laughing because the person who recommended teams of teams to me is a general, uh, and he happens to be my brother <laughs> and, and I have yet <laughs> to, re- I have yet to read it. So now that you've said it, I'll probably pull it out. In fact, I think he gave it to me for Christmas. So that's hilarious. Um, he's a general? yeah, he's a general, he's a general in the air force.
0: Oh, wow. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, it's pretty cool. I, uh, when he first hopped on the plane and sort of started that journey, I was like, yeah, there goes my brother. I kind of figured he was going to be brainwashed. And, you know, as I've watched that whole career evolve, it's it's very dynamic and rich. And they, they put a ton of resource into those guys and they're very skilled. And, and if there's one thing I would say about it, it's unfortunate that they don't really realize how skilled they are outside of the context of the military and you know they'll all figure it out when they decide to come out but it's uh it's been fun to watch but oh yeah. it. it's yeah. amazing it is amazing. amazing um you had mentioned you know sort of going back to hey if there's any younger listeners out there you know find a mentor like it's more fun it's easier your career is going to do better a- any other uh ideas that you would share with you know the entrepreneurs that are tuned in that maybe uh, could save them some of the blood, sweat and tears that you've expended along the way.
0: In a more entrepreneurial role, I would say always, always, always think about the long haul. Uh, Think about the ramifications long term of every decision that you make. Write the check. If, you're ever kind of teetering on whether or not you should write that check, uh, always err on the side, meaning, meaning err on the side of being more fair to somebody across the table from you. Uh, you know, if you're in a negotiation with someone, um, on something, whether it's an investor or a vendor, and you know, you want to preserve that long-term relationship, don't nickel and dime them. And, you know, kind of like what we we're discussing with employees that I think works in the entire ecosystem. Um, write that do, check. Do you have an
1: example of that? It sounds like you may have lived through that once or twice.
0: Sure. Uh, I've had on multiple occasions, a broker tell me, you know, we're, we're something we're, we're buying something and something goes haywire at the 11th hour, whether it's a shady act by the seller or something somewhere, pops out of nowhere and it could cost you a significant amount of money or money that's, you know, maybe seems material at the time, but it's really not long-term. And the broker says, I'll open up my checkbook and, you know, let me participate in this. Uh, or where a lot of other investors instinctually say, hey, why don't you help me out with this? this? Isn't my fault. We'll say, no, 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 it's okay. We'll we'll take care of that cost and we're not going to go after your fee and your fee is your fee. And this isn't your problem, so you shouldn't have to participate in it. So, uh, I think that is a, an example that you see often.
1: Yeah, that's cool. So, so what you're saying is, zoom out the, the thousand, ten thousand, fourteen thousand, hundred thousand. I don't know what sort of digits we're talking about here. In the big picture, the relationships more valuable than making a big issue of what's going to end up looking like a small amount of money.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Whether it's a, a vendor or a broker or an investor, uh, I can give you many examples that look just like that.
1: Yeah. So look, I'm, I, I, like I said, we're kind of move around a little bit here, but um, in our industry, and, and by that I mean real estate as a whole, I see individuals show up who have some unique vantage point that they're able to exploit and create value. And it's the fact that it's unique that makes it valuable. And the example I'll give you is a friend of mine in San Diego who's a hotel guy, and he happens to be very good at CAD, not like full architectural CAD, but he's hes a developer, and he's – very savvy in all aspects of development from, you know, managing the contract with the general contractors to good design, building good teams, you know, the the interior design, the property management, everything. He's just top flight operator. But where he's really unique is that he does the the building floor plans and the unit layouts. And so he'll take really constrained site and figure out like, well, if the floor plan looks like this, I can probably get 16 units per floor. I can go up 18 floors. Yeah, I could pay this much. Just an example of a unique vantage point that gives him a distinct competitive advantage. I wonder if either, and I'm not asking for you to give the keys to the kingdom away here by any stretch. If you've had moments where you've seen stuff like that for yourself or if you know others where you've seen like, wow, I don't know how he saw that, but he saw it, he exploited it, and he's clearly got a competitive advantage.
0: Well, I would say I can give you a couple of examples. Um, I think that last year, when everybody went pencils down and things the world was upside down and we were out there in the marketplace buying, uh, we had a couple of lenders outside of just agencies that we had done a lot of business with and have done great business with and their relationship lenders. And our relationship with those lenders, um, was strong, extremely, extremely strong. And they continued to lend to us, even through COVID where a lot of lend, most banks were, pencils down through all of last year. And mm-hmm. we had banks who lent to us, uh, during April, May, June of last year. I'm well, not really April cause we weren't closing it in April, but, uh, you know, May, June, July, August of last year, we were getting bank loans in addition to agency loans. And that gave us, we, you know, we discussed that internally, like, Hey guys, do you realize this is a competitive advantage that a lot of our competitors, especially in the middle market space, they can't get debt other than agencies. So because we had such strong relationships with our banks and again, we don't nickel and dime them on and grind them on pricing on coupons by a few basis points and origination fees. And we do right by them. And they did right by us when the time came and uh, we had a very strong competitive advantage. Um, In terms of outside organizations, I would say organizations that do have a sterling reputation uh you know kind of like what we talked about when you make people's lives easier and you they know that you're very very strong and you have the ability to close when it comes time to transact that is a very strong competitive advantage uh we've been in many best and finals where we've won deals where it's just the other groups are unknown groups and they've told us like uh or or they have a poor reputation and they say, we'd look, we'd rather transact with you guys. Uh, you know, can you just do these couple things and we'll give you guys the deal. And we've gotten that deal. Um, I know it happens. I know we were, we were recently in a best and final where there were, they were calling us and texting us saying, can you guys please come up? We know you guys, and we, we couldn't anymore. We just had nothing left. We didn't have any gas left in the tank. We couldn't come up anymore in price. We were, multiple rounds into a best in the line we always said, we're done. We just have nothing left. And they said to us, the seller would very much like to transact with you guys because they know you guys. And the seller was even texting us directly and saying, Hey, you know, you guys are the best buyer. Can you come up? Uh, otherwise we have a fiduciary to our investors. We have to go with these significantly higher price. We had, we had no gas left in the tank. So getting, having such a strong reputation, um, allows you last look at deals and other stuff like that.
1: Yeah, that's great. That's really good. Um, a couple little rapid fire questions here. These might be kind of fun. Uh, and then we could start to wrap it up. I appreciate you taking all the time to be in the conversation for, for me and and everybody who might be listening. Um, what's the smallest habit you have that makes the biggest difference? You might've already touched on it, but I'll ask
0: Health. Yeah, you can't possibly,
1: I thought you were going to say that too.
0: Yeah. You can't possibly manage an organization and your family and all these different things and grow on multiple coasts and seven, eight, nine States, if you're not worried about yourself first. So, uh, I was actually just talking, having this conversation with somebody in the gym and you know, there's that weight where you just feel like you're gliding on your feet and you kind of want to be at that weight. As crazy as that sounds, it makes a difference. It makes a huge difference. You get through your days so much more effectively and you don't have that sloggy feeling after lunch and you're just you're humming and you're firing on all cylinders and it's physical it's mental and that's the biggest difference for me
1: i'm in a group like an executive group that meets every month and uh within say the last five years i've started becoming one of these, unfortunately, middle-aged guys who wears lycra on a bicycle. (laughs) But I told all of them the benefits that have come to me from getting my fitness age-adjusted, almost certainly as fit as I've ever been, uh, outside of the fitness itself are so profound that if somebody could put it in a pill and sell it, I mean, people would honestly pay like Easily hundred bucks a day to get what you're talking about. And it's, if, if people don't get there on their own, it's hard to get that through. But I, I, uh, I'm glad you said it. I agree. I'm a plus one on <laughs> taking care of yourself so you can do all the other stuff.
0: Yep. I also, I stopped eating meat years ago. Uh, I'm a pescatarian. I only eat fish, vegetables, all that stuff. And that's also a huge difference. So it's not just being in the gym and exercising. It's what you put in your body. And that has made a huge difference.
1: What about dairy, butter, things like that?
0: I do I do limited, but I do do it. Um, and look, I eat out a lot too. you know, you're going out business lunches, business dinners, right. People cook with dairy, so that's very difficult to avoid when you're eating out a lot, but I do a lot less of it. Um, and I do do a lot of eggs as my animal as an animal protein.
1: Yeah, fair enough. Um, and then what's the the most common mistake that you see successful people making?
0: would it be a stupid, boring answer to say the opposite of that getting super heavy and maybe drinking too much during the week, you know, going out and having a couple glasses of wine, too many, and that affecting your following day. Um, I think that that's an easy one, right? Just the opposite, the exact opposite, but that's, you know, if you read any Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett Munger says, you know, a lot of the stuff that we do is just figuring out what's really stupid and uh, avoiding those things. So those are things that I would try to avoid. Uh, I would say, professionally in our business over leverage. You know, you look at guys yeah. who just over the years got killed, got killed. And that's, you know, that's that chart, that Charlie Munger mental model is where do guys go to die? Uh, just don't go there. And I think over leveraging has been probably the number one way to die in this business is going to these, you know, 90% loans, 85% loans and, doing crazy things to financial engineer a return when if you know, especially in our specific asset class, multifamily, if you have low to moderate leverage, you will never, ever, ever get hurt. You might underperform on your return if there's a macro recession, but you're not going to get wiped out.
1: Right. Yeah. hundred percent. So look, it's, uh, mid 2021, you've just relocated. You got two boys, wife, uh, a, a brand new opportunity in the southeast. Obviously, that's some of what's on the horizon. But zooming out more, where where are you guys headed? What's Chion and, and, and Max Charcansy, you know, next three to five years?
0: Um, continue to grow the portfolio, like we discussed. I'm really, really excited to be here. I did not think I'd be doing anything like this ever, but COVID changed a lot of people. It changed a lot of perspectives. And it changed the world. It changed America. Uh, I think it's changed. It's amplified the demographic shift. We've already kind of sort of been seeing if you've been watching that with people moving to the Sun Belt and just doing new things with remote work, uh, whatever you think about that, and uh, working in other parts of the country that aren't LA, San Francisco, and New York, and really excited to capture that growth and be a part of that both personally, you know, because here I am in the Sunbelt and professionally buying multifamily real estate to capture that rent growth. Um, And excited to scale our organization into something that's really large and exciting.
1: Yeah, that's great. So uh, the mic is yours. Anything else you want to share? Words of wisdom? You've done plenty of that. But if you want to say anything more, have at it. If you want to share your email, uh, website, phone number, I think it's out there for posterity. So, um, you know, a word of caution, I guess, potentially. Um, but Mike is yours for any kind of closing thought you might have. And, uh, again, I, I want to say thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it, Max.
0: Thank you for having me. It's been a fantastic pod. Really, really appreciate it. and Really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, if anybody wants to reach out, yeah, sure. Just, uh, email me, max at tryonproperties.com, um, or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Uh, what else, um, I would, any, you know, any younger entrepreneurs out there, I would say, take some risks, uh, be, don't be risk averse at some point in your career, you've got to take some risks and that doesn't necessarily mean going to start your own company and starting from scratch. You know, you could be number employee one, two or three at a company. And I've got, we've got some people that have been with us for many, many years. And they're doing really, really well, because now they get the piece of the up. So they are a part of ownership. So go take some risks. That is the best advice I would give for a young budding entrepreneur or real estate professional.
1: Excellent. Uh, Again, thank you, Max. Thank you to the listeners. Um, My production people are telling me that I should remind you if you enjoy this hop on whatever you're listening and drop a review I guess that's kind of the catalyst to growing the listenership Uh, again thanks everyone and uh, Max I'm sure we'll be talking before too long
0: thank you and if you want to go to the website it's tryon t-r-i-o-n properties.com you can invest through there you can look at our education look at our case studies so please do visit tryonproperties.com Kevin thank you so much it's been fantastic
1: Yeah, thank you, Max.